This is the internet channel for the study of Hegel. And here is your host, Robert Vane. Okay, shall we dive into it? Shall we try and make sense of this passage? And see uh, if what we've done before allows us to understand this properly. So, let's read it. Let's read paragraph 41 and see if it's uh, of any use to us in understanding the German original, which is like this. Die Person muss sich eine äußere Sphäre ihrer Freiheit geben, um als Idee zu sein. It makes perfect sense. And now the English. A person must translate his freedom, I don't like translate, into an external sphere, okay, it says sphere in German, so we'll allow that, in order to exist as idea. Okay, exist is not really to be, yeah, zu sein, but I think in English it might sound awkward to say in order to be as idea. So, what can he do? He must say something like exist. Well, that is not the emphatic expression that Hegel uses. Ah, so that's a good question. So you're saying how can a person be idea? I think your question arises from the fact that it says a person. So the translation says someone. Exactly, but then you shouldn't translate die person as if it said eine person. In German you would say eine person, uh, which doesn't make any sense because it's not you or me individually that translate our freedom and want to exist as idea, of course not. Um, it says so in the second line. Uh, so if someone in English reads on, he might become totally confused. Personality somehow creeps in. And the interesting thing is that the translator here, die Person, he translated as a person. And the same word, die Person, he translated in the second sentence as personality. So he should have understood that personality is the subject um, here. And not a person, but the person, or the personality, maybe. So the first sentence should read, the personality, which is the abstract universal, and not the singular individual. That doesn't make sense. So what we call personality, which is a trait that all individuals have in common, that personality must translate his freedom into an external sphere, in order to exist this idea. The idea of personality he is talking about. And not, um, he's not talking about persons that have this crazy aspiration to become ideas. I mean, that, that sounds silly even in English. Yes, uh, but it, it's, a, it's a translation error uh, because it confuses a reader that the person is translated a person which is an individual and personality which is the abstract character so um, the answer to your question is well um, it is impossible that a person does this or that a person has the objective to exist as idea but you must understand the person in the sense of the abstract universal. So personality as such is oriented toward an externalization, a realization. Um, freedom must become real in the real world. It cannot simply exist in the way Sartre thought as the inner negativity. It must have an external sphere. No, but a person, when he does this, when he comes into the external world, will merely experience limitations to his freedom. Because a person would be a singular free will. So we talked about that in the introduction. That in the concept of free will, the moment of individuality 
is actually this weird opposition between inner drive and motivation and ultimately the striving for happiness on the one hand and on the other hand the external world which is the object of his actions but also the limitation to his actions so when we talk about a person a person will never translate his freedom into an external sphere he will encounter this external sphere in the attempt to exercise his freedom but you will never translate his freedom into an external sphere that is something that we uh, do as social subjects not as individual uh, desiring needy uh, uh, and finite subjects so this is something that belongs to personality which is um, which belongs to our individual existence, but it's not our individuality itself. And so we are individuals in the sense that we have this singular body, this singular consciousness, and we, uh, from that uh, point, we see the world as something outside of us, as something external to us. That is our singularity and individuality. Uh, free will is abstract, Hegel says. On that level but in so much as we are a person we understand that the external world is also an expression of our freedom at least if we um, approach our lives as philosophers we should understand that the uh, limitations of our freedom are at the same time the conditions um, under which that freedom can be real notice the way Hegel uses the word idea here, what is the idea? The idea is the concept that is totally identical to its reality. That's what the word idea means. It's the concept, logical concept, as being one and the same as its reality. So, um, if personality will exist in this world, there must be something like the translation of freedom into externality. Freedom must express itself in the shaping of an external world. That's not something you do as an individual. That's the immediate form. That's the immediate form. Uh, ultimately, the the um, uh, existence of the concept, of the reality of the concept, ultimately is spirit, or in a logical sense, idea. But spirit and idea are the same. Eh? That they're Dasein simply means something like um, uh, being there in a qualitative sense. When I look at the screen, I see blue. The blue is there. When I look in my room, I see books. The books are there. <coughs> <coughs> so, um, Dasein is a very, very simple concept connected to uh, being something. Something is there. That's the full range of Dasein as being there. Now, most of the time it's translated into English with the word existence. That's not too bad, but existence, existence, is something Hegel uses, not in the sphere of immediacy, of being. I mean, Dasein is one of the categories of being. Eh? It's in the first part of the logic. Uh, in the first section of the first part of the logic, it uh, deals with being and nothingness and something and being there, Dasein and all of that. But existence is a category of the second part of the logic, uh, namely essence. Existence is that an essence is present in reality up to a degree, because the essence is never fully realized in the world of reality so existence is at the same time uh, just illusion and uh, the essence of Hegel is then thinking about Plato uh, uh, something that exists is a realization of its genus of its uh, universal nature uh, that's that's what Plato thought of all ideas of all concepts so we see a horse which is an existing horse, which expresses the uh, essence of hoarseness, but is not 
identical to hoarseness. So we speak about existence if we mean that relationship between between what something is and the fact that something is. It's always this relationship. That's not the case with Dasein. Dasein doesn't express a relationship whatsoever. It just means being there. Um, in the same sense of being there, the blue is there, I am here, God is here, uh, the state is here, it's, it's just there. See what I mean? Um, but the word ex existence ha has this the word existence has this inner determinacy which is much, much richer than Dasein. And that's the problem with the English translation of Dasein or, uh, or Sein uh, with the word exist, because exist here uh, means like uh, means something like being present within our experience as a thing, um, as a thing that has properties and that uh, um, uh, realizes some essence. So it's it's a, a, a word with way too much um, implicit uh, notions to express the simpleness of. Uh, sein that Hegel uses here. He doesn't even use the word Dasein. He's, he, he even makes it more immediate by saying um als Idee zu sein. Eh? Simple, simply to be idea. Um, but he, he can, Hegel can do that because for him the word idea has to be stressed here. This complete and full identity between concept and reality. That requires um, for personality to be this identity of concept, the concept of personality, and the reality of personality, it needs an external sphere. Uh, without a world in which personality expresses itself, finds its limitations, um, uh, changes the world, um, uh, grasps the world, feeds on the world, whatever, um, personality remains an abstract and inner concept. And when you talk about personality, what what do you actually mean in modern usage? I mean, you you mean the the uh, individual characteristics of a person most of the time. Eh? He has a nice personality, you can say, uh, and you say it especially when he is quite ugly. So he has a nice character or a nice. Personalities, so a personality and the character are almost the same, but here, Hegel means uh, not uh, uh, the character traits of a person, but he means the essence of being a person. Uh, he means Persönlichkeit, in the sense of real individuality, concrete and real individuality, um, thinking. Um, within the objective spirit, the essence of being a person um, gradually unfolds itself uh, from being an owner to being a citizen. Because ultimately that is what personality is. Yes. Um, and who, the farther you get into the system, the more you get to the conditions of the former categories. So the, the ultimate, the, the end of the whole development is the concrete form containing the conditions of the first, most immediate category. Where do you encounter personality first and foremost at a simple glance, just immediately given? Well, in the fact that I own something. Because that makes an external sphere into something that um, my freedom can express itself in. That's the first immediate idea. But how is that possible? Ultimately, it's only possible because there has been a history of social relations that produce it, produced the modern state that achieved what Plato um, couldn't achieve, that is the, um, the synthesis between individual freedom and communal and social being. 
So when we get to the end of the philosophy of right, we step into the history of states and their relations. And that is the um, way the spirit has made it possible that something like the modern state developed. And only in that modern state can there be a person that has a property. So what seems to be the, the, the total expression of uh, right, huh? uh, that is, um, consider a human being, he has needs and he surrounds himself with objects and marks them as being his. This, these are my, my things, this is my cup of coffee, etc. Um, that is the first appearance of something like society or something like uh, civil society. Uh, you might think as a person, well, that's it. Everything within the social environment um, is based upon the fact that I can call something my own or that other people have properties and I have properties and between uh, other people and, and me there is this demarcation, this boundary. Uh, so as long as I don't interfere with the property of others and I stick to my own property, then the freedom of others is guaranteed and that's it. That's, a, that's the whole of uh, society. Uh, the rest is just uh, um, detail. But this is the principle. That is what, um, that is why uh, Hegel develops first the idea of property, because in um, uh, natural law theories, uh, that is the basic principle from which everything else develops. See what I mean? So, but ultimately for him, I can only be an owner because I'm a citizen. So if I look at the concept of ownership, I will find that there is something else in there, something that ownership um, presupposes without expressing it, uh, that comes into play as well. So um, the first idea about society is that there are owners, persons, that have properties, and those properties are purely external to them. That, that's paragraph 41 and 42 in a nutshell. And from there we must try to investigate further and we'll find ultimately this notion of citizenship, which is then highly qualified and very rich in content because we can easily say, well, I'm owner, I'm citizen, but by saying I'm an owner, I designate myself as something abstract, but calling myself a citizen expresses my full developed concrete social being. Uh, so the, there are two categories with totally because citizen implies ownership. Um, explicitly if you're a citizen you can own property that's obvious that's explicit but that you're a citizen simply because you're an owner that is implicit that's not explicit by saying that you own something you're not saying anything about your relationship to a state or a relationship to a society or that you belong to a family and that you through labor have to provide for your family, etc. You don't say anything about that. You just say something about the relation between a person and an object. But you say something implicit about the relation to other subjects, which is interesting. You say something implicit about, um, let's say, also the, the system that guarantees that property. Um, later on, we get in Encyclopedia, for instance, the idea of uh, policing, uh, the idea of the polizai, which is not the police. Polizai means the whole of political government um, from uh, the level of uh, uh, a village council up to and including government of a state. So we have concrete policies at work. Um, which defend the rights and guarantee rights and etc. 
but that that's not in the it, it, that's not expressed in the concept of property yet. But citizen has all of that in it. Citizen means that you are a family man, uh, can be, uh, uh, can have, uh, or must have uh, uh, some kind of labor that you do, that you have right to an education, that you have uh, voting rights and all of that. That's, that's implied or that is explicit in the, in the concept of citizenship. If someone wants to become a Croatian citizen, he's not just applying to be able to own something within Croatia, right? Um, we have the um, <laughs> we have the Dutch, the Dutch idea of inburgering. Eh? Inburgering means that you have to prove to the government that you're able to function like a citizen. So you need to learn the language, you need to know something about the social institutions, you must be able to sing the national anthem, um, you must uh, learn something about um, uh, cultural habits like. Uh, the festival of Santa Claus and th stuff like that. Uh, you need to be uh, aware uh, of uh, Dutch culture and you need to be able to find your way um, in that and communicate with Dutch people. That's the inburgering, that's the uh, process by which you truly can be a citizen. The same in, in the United States, they have that kind of system as well. But that's more than just saying, well, uh, you now have the right to own property in Holland. That That's not citizenship. But on the other hand, if you're a citizen, it's completely obvious that you can be an owner. That belongs to your rights and freedoms as a citoyen, eh? as, a, as a citizen. Sure, yes. But that's very important that you say they are preserved. I mean, the, the, the concept of sublation, eh? the aufhebung, which means uh, negation and elevation at the same time. That's a very important concept. Um, if concept A is property and concept uh, B is contract, um, let's say that contract is the next one. Now, contract presupposes and includes property because you have a contract um, because you want to make an exchange of properties or you want to um, make some kind of service or activity into a property that can be sold, that can be uh, evaluated on its um, uh, financial value. So a contract presupposes property. Property doesn't presuppose. Um, objects and activities. Yes. And if you um, sell them a book on Croatian grammar, you are selling uh, an object. And in both cases, they have to provide some kind of, um, uh, have to fulfill some kind of duty of their own that can be to give you money or it can be to um, clean up your house in return for the lessons you give them or whatever. But the contract has always these, these two sides. Um, they, and they define the rights and the obligations that you have in that contract. Um, but that presupposes that you have ownership of your uh, labor, for instance, that you uh, are the owner of your time and your energy. Um, no, the point is that in, in our philosophical analysis, we take the most immediate concept first. So we take the concept that uh, is the least uh, concrete, the least complicated, the most simple notion. And we see what's in there. We can't start with the most explicit and most complicated notion because we have no idea what to, what to do with it. 
um, all of its characteristics would stand side by side if we start with that. If we start with the state, for instance, we would have a list of hundreds of pages with whatever belongs to something like the state. But property can be expressed um, in, in a relatively simple way because it's a relatively simple simple concept. So we start with the simple and the immediate concept. But then we find that uh, property has uh, conditions under which it is real um, that are outside of it as concept. So property refers to its own conditions that are outside of it. But it's something real in itself. So how do, how do we proceed? We proceed by taking up the first set of conditions and expressing that together with the first concept. So what is uh, the, the first way in which property is recognized? Well, that is in, in a contract. When you exchange property, you um, exercise your freedom to do with your property what you like in a relation with another owner who does the same. And we now do it together. He has a property that comes into mine, my ownership and I have a property that comes into his ownership. So we exchange objects. Or um, I exchange an object for money. Or we simply um, uh, render each other specific services that we exchange. But in that exchange, the nature of property uh, becomes very apparent. Namely, not just that I can put my volition into something, but that I, that I can also withdraw that volition, give something up, um, make something disappear from my uh, bookcase and make it belong to someone else. And that is what is expressed in the, in the notion of contract. And of course, if there is contract, Two sides, two freedoms have to agree on something and work in um, harmony to um, fulfill the contract. There can also be this negative side to freedom, namely that one of them, or both, uh, withholds his affirmation of the contract. So I give you the book, but you don't pay me. Which, again... Eh? Sure. And then something else turns up, because that violation of contract is not just the end of the story. It turns out that that something can be called Unrecht. So it's an injustice to do that, but not according to the law of property, because that means I can do whatever I want. Not according to the idea of contract, because it means I have an agreement, but I can, of course, negate that agreement whenever I want, right? No. We call that unrecht. On the basis of what? Not on the basis of property. On the basis of morality. Because it's not good to act like that, etc. So we discover uh, with each transition that there is a hint of something else. Something more than just individual free will. Something more than personality. And then we come into the sphere of, uh, after morality, come into the sphere of social morality. We discover that the first social unit in which this other side of things, this social side of things, is uh, fully realized, yet still remains implicit because nobody really is self-conscious about it, uh, not really aware of what it means. That is the family, the life in the family. It's not a contract. Family is not a contract. Um, but family uh, members go into contracts and sell their labor, uh, exchange properties for the good of the family. And now, again, something new seems to be there. Now, why is there property? Because there are families. Because family life has uh, this needy side to it. There must be guarantees that property is respected. So, again and again, you find that the concept of property... Um, can only be um, when when other things are there. 
So we enrich this concept of property. Property is first simply that I can call something my own, and then it becomes I can um, uh, exchange things, and uh, I have some kind of relation to other owners, and then I find that I can withdraw my liberty, but then I find that there is uh, a social um, uh, response to my withdrawing of my um, consent within the contract, because I, I perpetrate injustice for which I have to pay uh, a fine at least, or somebody can force me to uphold the contract. And then this whole sphere of abstract right is exhausted, and I have to make the transition into this inner awareness of what is good and what is bad. That That's how it's, it develops. And it becomes more concrete by every step we take. But it's never gone. It's elevated into a new, higher level of concreteness. But it's not simply negated in the sense of the abstract negation. Uh, that is to say that we have now to understand society is based on contracts and property is no more. That property is always there, but it, it becomes modified and more concrete. This concept of property is very basic and very simple and very abstract. Uh, if, if you are the owner of a house and you rent that house to someone, uh, that's the wrong English expression, I believe you have to say you let that house to someone. Eh? If you rent it, you are the, um, the, the not the owner, but the, um, the occupier of the house. So if you lend it to someone, um, that you know there are very many social restrictions. And you can't just um, uh, get the money every month and neglect to um, keep the house in good shape, for instance. And you have to be responsible for um, the water pipes and the electricity and, uh, the, in general, the state of the house in order to make it um, livable. Um, those are restrictions of, of your ownership. Uh, you can't just say, uh, I, I let it to you and that's, that's it. And you, uh, uh, <clears throat> any problem you have, uh, you just deal with it on your own. So property turns out to be, in a, in a modern free society, to be not just that simple concept. How about intellectual ownership? That's something very, very difficult to handle. So you're not just there when you say, oh, property is that you have the right to do whatever you like with a particular object. That, that's not enough. But instead of having, that, that's what the legal profession would do. We have these articles in, in, the, in the law books about property, and we just make a list of everything that it says. And there's some kind of coherence to it, but that's not the real point. It's the series of um, uh, rules of law that govern what we call property. No, says Hegel, we must try and understand what property is, because that is really the driving force behind this legal, this, this lawyer's perspective on the rules of property in a given society. Good. Good. Now that's important because this will will um, uh, uh, turn up at every corner. With every transition, you have this question. <laughs> no. no. But this is the problem of the dialectic process, eh? the problem of transition from one category to the other. Why is that? What is lost? What is gained? How does this system as a whole work? Uh, you, you, can, you can and should ask that question uh, with every term we make. So it's a good question. But it's a question that is um, perhaps relatively easily answered in general. But you have to ask the question uh, time and time again with each concrete step that he makes. Uh, so the question, you shouldn't forget the question now that you have an inkling of the answer. You should try and ask that question every time. Why is property becoming contract and not something other than contract? 
Why is that? Well, that's a good question. And that's the question that will provide you with insight into what contract and property actually are. Yes. But simply by focusing on the concept of property, you see property changing before your eyes. That's, that's the point. That is the point. It's not we who decide to move from property to uh, uh, contract. It's what's, what's in there. Uh, he talks about, um, I mean, the, the Grundlinien that we are reading is really very, very um, detailed. Uh, it's talking about, about a besitzname, so coming into possession of something. Um, it talks about usage, um, because those are also uh, important things. And then it finally ends with the neg negation, um, that is that I can dispense with my property, I can give it away, or I can destroy it. Then we have all the elements of property. Now, at the end, this, therefore, we have uh, the notion of um, giving away the property. Paragraph 71 then describes the transition. Um, what can we do with property? If we know all of this, we know that we can um, destroy property, we can use property, we can simply uh, take something into possession. What, what does all of that actually amount to? Well, it, it amounts to this, that in the background there are other persons who have to recognize our usage, our taking possession, our um, right to destroy our own possessions or whatever. Now, what about um, this then? What about two people um, exchanging property? What does that mean? It's the first question that comes to mind after you have described all of this. What happens to property if you do not simply destroy your property, but you give it to someone else? It moves from one ownership to another ownership. What is that? Now, that is exactly what contract means. Contract is the... There's this weird thing that, it, that possession seems to me mean. My individual will in this individual object, but if there is an exchange of objects, what is going on? One person wants to get rid of something, and the other person takes that thing into possession. So we have Yes, I, I can't take something in my possession uh, that belongs to someone else unless, unless I first recognize uh, his ownership. And if I don't recognize his ownership, I'm a thief. Now, but there must be some kind of contract when something changes hands, eh? when something becomes the property of someone else. Because the person owning it has to give it up in order for me to legally obtain it. So he has to give it up and I then can obtain it. That, that is an exchange. But that exchange is governed by a mutual affirmation of what is going on, the mutual, affirm mutual affirmation of uh, the exchange. And that is what contract is. So this whole social sphere now, um, where property belongs to and where it finds its reality, uh, comes into play a bit more. A contract, contract explicitly talks about the moment of two free wills. I mean... When I possess something, I exclude others. When I exchange my possession for someone else's possession, I include others. That's interesting, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a normal normal way to deal with property, to exchange it or to sell it or whatever. Um, but it's contradictory because if I am the owner, 
that means everybody else has to uh, uh, stay away from it. And now I'm going to exchange it, which presupposes that I exclude others and includes that, or, or and means also that I have to include others. They want this, they want this possession. I'm giving it up, and then they can take it into possession. This is the the interesting uh, positivity and negativity going on at the same time. So it's much more uh, concrete, much more complicated. It's it's not just the immediacy of it's mine, stay away. No, it's mine, so you should stay away. But if I freely decide to let you have it, then I can give it to you, and now it's yours. That that I mean that describes such a, a an intricate process which can only be done in a safe, secure way if there is um, uh, a habit of persons uh, accepting that it is the right thing to do to respect all of this. That there is not a third party that says, no, no, it's your property, so you cannot give it to him or her. That would be foolish. Or that you say, well, I'm giving it to you, but it's still mine. So um, when I want to, I can claim to have it back and so forth. I mean, all of that is embedded in a social structure that finds it um, self-evident and normal that you can give things away, that things change hands. That's not expressed in the concept of property as such. That, so we need to find another concept that does express that part of our experience with property. It's part of property that you can exchange it, and yet in the concept of property is not expressed. So we need to find a higher concept that contains property, which is the presupposition of it all, and also makes it possible to understand the notion of exchange. Well, says Hegel, isn't that what we call contract? And I think he's right. As soon as, as, when I decide that something that belongs to me will become yours, now who is it at that moment? It's mine, but soon to be no longer mine. It's yours, but not yet fully. So what is this strange status of this object? Sure. If, if we define property as that something is my own, as soon as I intend to give it away, I'm making the cup of coffee, but I'm making it not for myself, but for you. Is it mine or not? Well, everyone else should stay clear of that cup of coffee because it's mine. Obviously it's mine. It's my cup, my coffee, I made it, etc. But I'm making it for you, so what, who is it? And if I, if I don't give it to you, to whom I promised it, but I give it to someone else, what am I doing? Injustice, we say. That's a bad thing to do. Why? I could, I could do with my property what I want. <laughs> In the family, you first experience what this all means. Uh, you, 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 you notice what it means to give a promise or to own something. Um, your children own something, but up to a degree, because they are not owners in the full sense of proprietors, not according to the law at least. Um, you learn them, you teach them that ownership has to be combined with responsible uh, dealing with your possessions. Um, a lot of these things are learned. You learn the value of contract. If I give you this, then, then I get something from you. Exchanging goods. Uh, you learn so much of these basic um, uh, values and actions and modes of actions that you have to use also in civil society. So on the other hand, you can look into family life and try to discern how these very complicated 
adult relations are foreshadowed by the way children learn the basics of them. Uh, they learn cooperation um, uh, when they're young and, and they learn ownership when they're young and they learn how to deal with <coughs> the conflict of ownership, etc., etc. It depends on the era in, in which you live. It depends on the university where, where you're uh, being taught Hegel. But um, uh, I mean, in Amsterdam, uh, the Hegel's social philosophy was just as important as his metaphysics. Uh, so I remember classes on logic and phenomenology, but also classes on philosophy of right. Always in connection with with Kant and the uh, and other traditions, never just Hegel, um, but it was deemed to be very important. Hegel is the first and the most important philosopher of modern society, and uh, that is something to uh, to remember because that modern society is the very complex context in which we try to live our lives. So everything that is relevant in our dealings with the outside world, with our self-awareness as persons in the free world. No, quite a lot. I mean, I mean, all, all my Hegelian professors in Amsterdam, for instance, because I was lucky to have that environment. I mean, Hegel was studied extensively in uh, the 1970s, because in the 1960s, everybody was uh, analyzing and studying Karl Marx. And when the study of Karl Marx didn't seem to really change the world, as Marx has said. They went back to Hegel to see what was wrong with Marx. So they tried to understand the world first. That was the 70s and the 80s in which I grew up as a philosopher. So it was terribly important. And, and you do remember from your readings that there is a very powerful French reception of Hegel in which Hegel was somehow connected either as the um the 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 um the enemy or as the uh, silent patriarch um in existentialist philosophy uh, to sartre he is the enemy uh, to levinasi is the enemy but to others um like kojev he became the great hero uh, what was lacking in marx they found in hegel so hegel had a tremendous influence well, it's an attempt to, to interpret Hegel um, and bypassing Hegel's method and Hegel's system. And that was very, quite popular. Just get the system out of the way and then you can uh, try and find the inner core of Hegel's ideas. And that didn't work. So in the 70s, my great teacher Jan Hollack uh, wrote his, um, his dissertation precisely in, in an attempt to recover um, the uh, architecture of Hegel's system. Uh, and he found that Hegel was uh, first and foremost a philosopher of history, and that you had needed to look at the whole of the system, and that there was more kinship between Hegel and the Thomist tradition than you might think uh, at first glance. And, um, so there was this very interesting move in Amsterdam toward a, a Hollackian uh, um, perspective on Hegel that I still yep yeah he is <laughs> um I will try and translate uh, parts of, I, I already did, uh, translated and commented on parts of his um, dissertation, especially when dealing with, because his dissertation was about the phenomenology. Um, and he tried to uh, yep. <laughs> Jan, Jan Hollack was a genius. <sighs> Well he, he was well he wrote his dissertation not at the age that most people do. He was a bit older. Um, but then again he had a grasp of Hegel's dialectic that is unsurpassed, I think, in Dutch philosophy, uh, philosophical history. Uh, so I'm still very dependent upon him in understanding the whole of the 
system of Hegel and especially the phenomenology um, because that dissertation is absolutely marvelous. Uh, but there are others like uh, Pippin. Pippin is someone who was cherished by my uh, main teacher, which wasn't John Hollock. John Hollock is my grandfather in philosophy. But Kejian Bronze, Bronze uh, is my uh, father in philosophy, who was a pupil of Jan Hollock. Um, and he also had a great understanding of, uh, of Hegel. Uh, but he wasn't a Hegelian. Jan Hollack was more or less a Hegelian. Uh, and Keishan Brons wasn't. He was more a Kantian or a Thomist. <clears throat> and he had, had his own agenda in, in doing philosophy. Um, uh, well, I, I'm not a Hegelian myself. I'm not a true Hegelian myself. So, um, well, you shouldn't be. If you're a true Hegelian, you find out that you shouldn't be. Uh, because Hegel forbids it. Uh, that's, the, that's the interesting thing. Uh, Hegel don't, doesn't want us to be Hegelians. Eh? Pippin is, uh, is important, especially when writing about his social philosophy. And I think he's far better equipped to write about that than some of the others more popular. Uh... No, but of course we can try, like the Neo-Hegelians have always tried to do, uh, to reduce the obscurity of the text um, without um, maiming the contents. I mean, that's what I try to do with the cup of coffee as well. Um, you need... You... Um... Now, you know the, the expression by Kierkegaard eh, that to Hegel the absolute um, is in his um, a chamber robe sitting in a chair smoking a pipe. Eh? I mean, the absolute is very um, ordinary in a way. Um, it's not the mystical absolute of Schelling. It's not the um, powerful uh, force through the world as it is in Nietzsche. Um, Hegel's absolute is there and presenting itself when you are sitting at your desk writing a letter or when you get fined for traffic violation or whatever. But the, the absolute is mundane in Hegel. Um, it's not the spectacle, it's not the extraordinary that is aimed for. So that is the reason that I think I could very good, very well use the, the example of the cup of coffee. That, that's not anti-Hegelian. Uh, as if the absolute must be something spe spectacular. No, he says that the absolute is in 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 everyday everyday things. In in. <laughs> yeah, but if you dive into the text, you see that it is... Well, I mean, Hegel's philosophy is the ultimate form of realism, and that's the reason that it is idealism. If you, if you can understand that, you know a lot about Hegel. Um, so, to him, the, the ultimate challenge is to understand what is. And what is, is mundane. What is, is that people go up in the morning and they go to their work and they have challenges and they have uh, political ideas and responsibilities or they are artisans making works of art or they are politicians doing the work of the state, etc. I mean, what everyone does is Hegel's interest. If you read a philosopher like Heidegger, he, he dealt with that in Sein und Zeit, that's the ordinary way of life, and the, for the rest, philosophy has this weird um, uh, Aufgabe, this weird um, task, um, to go beyond all that, or, or to move before all of that, and to ask for the uh, original uh, disclosure of being that makes all of that possible. Hegel doesn't do that. Hegel never transcends ordinary life. He tries to understand it. 
and he takes it for granted that ordinary life is the expression of the spirit. I mean, this acceptance of ordinary life as the vehicle of the spirit, that is what attracts me in Hegel. This, uh, this, 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 okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, don't you think so? I mean, that, that is the reason that Hegel, um, after you have deciphered his abstract language, becomes so close to your everyday experience. And I, I think it's important in teaching Hegel to show just how close you can get to your own uh, ordinary life just by truly understanding Hegel. And then finding out that that ordinary life is spectacular in the sense that it uh, is much more than it looks like. There's much more going on um, in everyday life than you might realize at, the, at first glance. And it's not something that you need to escape. Philosophy is not the escape from the ordinariness of life. Um, it's actually the return to it. But the return in what you might call the second naivete. Yeah? I mean, uh, you have to leave the expectations and um, self-evidences of, of normal life to become a philosopher, to, to do philosophy. But then after having done philosophy in the Hegel style, you return to that ordinary life. Uh, and it's okay. Um, it's good. I mean, Kierkegaard's objection to Hegel is that Hegel erected a cathedral for the absolute and I wanted to live in the, the, the dog house next to it. Uh, so that he, in a way, uh, that his philosophy isn't about him, isn't about his life. And I thoroughly disagree with that. I think what you might say is that Hegel erected a, a cathedral for our life. Uh, I mean, our lives actually are within the cathedral. Um, and we are the people that in our naivete, in our unphilosophical understanding of ourselves, believe that we live in the doghouse. And Hegel teaches us how to live in the cathedral. Yep. <laughs> okay, I'll try and uh, and publish it uh, and see uh, what others will think about this. We haven't really dived into paragraph 41, 42 really deeply, but we have discussed a lot of uh, important things. Okay, well, that is fantastic. Uh, let us then now... Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. I'm trying to... Um, uh, okay, stop the screen sharing now. Okay. So, we can look each other in the eye again. Um... I, I'm going to make um, uh, a video of this recording. Now we have talked for one hour and seven minutes, so it's a bit long. So I'll probably break it up into two or three pieces and see if we can do that with the subject that we talked about. But um, yeah, I do believe it can be important to get this general idea of the principles of Hegel's philosophy. Uh, yeah. But of course, the demonstration of what I've said is in in the uh, let's say the eating of the pudding, eh? <laughs> going through the details, uh, because that's how it's built up. It, it's uh, if Hegel just wanted to say these things Heidegger style, uh, he would have written one hundred pages, and that would have been it. But he really wants to give us a demonstration of the necessity of this principle. Eh? I think that's important too that he. He really wants to be the philosopher that demonstrates it. And, um, well, he called that the hard labor of the concept. 
um, you talked about uh, the difficulty of reading Hegel. Yeah, it's because he takes the concept very seriously. He wants to analyze it in a complete manner, and that takes a lot of hard work. And he's not afraid of that hard work. We are. Uh, I mean, we, we read Zizek, um, and we find him difficult, but at least he's short. Uh, uh, <laughs> he doesn't write that, that kind of thick books, and he repeats himself all the time. And I like... I like him intensely. I like him intensely. But his popularity is, in a way, uh, uh, derived from the fact that he's doing the opposite of Hegel. He's not a systematic thinker. Uh, um, so you'll never find with him that he goes from A to Z um, in some kind of ordered fashion. He, he jumps around and he makes uh, wonderful uh, texts. But Yeah. Yeah. I I I just read Zizek to be challenged and to be motivated and, and not to um really understand the whole of his philosophy. I don't think it works like that. But it's fun and it, it's um enticing and uh, well some of the times I think he's he's absolutely right spot on with some kind of analysis um, but most of the time I have the feeling that uh, I mean it, it's nicely written but um, it's always essay like it's always um, a thought that is never fully determined it's always it has loose threads all over the place and um, Maybe there is a follower of Zizek who can get him into this systematic jacket, this straight jacket, and uh, force some sanity into him. But I, I doubt it very much. It, it's, uh, I, I, I read a lot of... Uh, Hegel is the king and Zizek is his clown. Uh, I think that is the best way to describe their relationship. Huh? Uh, he's, the, he's the court jester of Hegel. <laughs> and he's, he's allowed to say things about Hegel that nobody else is allowed to. <laughs> that even Hegel would laugh about. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, um, no, I'm not using Zizek, uh, not even in that commenting on Hegel. Hegel should be understood with Hegel. Uh, Hegel is his own best commentary. I think truly that's the case. And there are lots of people who write about Hegel that I deeply admire, like Jean Hippolyte. I think he's one of the best commentators on the phenomenology. Um, there are people who write about... Uh, uh, what's the name of the guy again? Um, not about the um, philosophy of writes, uh, unfortunately, but he wrote about the concept of natural uh, law in uh, in Hegel. 850 pages. <laughs> it's really, it's tremendous. Um, this one, this one is really important. Uh, the will in Hegel's philosophy. That's, oh yeah, I thought I read wouldn't this be translated into some English or one? Okay, let's stick to German for a while. With, that's the most important thing. But I'm going to read this. I'm going on a holiday in August. I'm going to babysit my uh, sister's house. And uh, so that will be a wonderful time to read this. Uh, our discussions, uh, by the way, then just uh, continue because I have internet in, uh, in Amsterdam as well. Um, she lives in Amsterdam, yeah, in the suburb of Amsterdam, and I'm living more away in Eimuiden, more to the west near the coast. So, uh, but uh, we're going to be there for three weeks, and uh, you won't uh, you won't miss a beat. You won't see the difference. What? 
No, that, those are not Hegel books. <laughs> this is my this is a call I'm expecting. Uh, oh, I think my wife took it. But I'm expecting a call around this time, so I have to I have to take it. So we have to stop now. I see you next Tuesday, right? Next Tuesday on WizAQ. Tuesday on WizAQ. Oh no, you 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 weren't able to do this next week Tuesday. Thursday we have our uh, session again then, our private session. Um, if we make it Tuesday, uh, Thursday evening. Okay. Um, I have to get... Uh, I, okay, I can do that. But normally I've, I get someone at 7.30 here for a class. Uh, but I will discuss it with Merve if, if she is able to join us Thursday or Friday. Okay? Yes, sure. Okay, we'll manage. So, um, when you can, I see you Tuesday, but maybe not. Uh, and then we have contact about Thursday or Friday next week. We just continue with our uh, discussion. And I'll let you know when the video is then on the internet. I'm using a new system called Anchor. No, I'm not using... Yes, I, I am. <laughs> I, I'm using Vimeo as well. So Vimeo is with the image. And Anchor is just the audio. I'm using both. So um, if you... I, sp I spent two and a half hours trying to get the technology straight this morning and I failed miserably. And then I felt very guilty that instead of reading and studying Hegel, I was doing all this twitching and fiddling around with the technology. <laughs> but, uh, okay, it was all right, I guess. Hey, thank you for uh, this afternoon. It was very enjoyable. Uh, have a good time. Work well. And uh, what is that? Oh yeah, <laughs> that, that's what the Pope does, doesn't he? Or the Queen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, <laughs> Queen Ivana. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>